visualization is about abundance represented by a flow of pure gold descending from above, flowing down in front of us, falling like water into our laps. This great flow of golden coins bearing us in the beauty and the power and the freedom of infinite source. Feel those gold coins melting into a flowing river of golden light. Feel that the money that we need in our lives to provide for us in the way that we feel we have responsibility to do to take care of ourselves, of our loved ones, and of God's work in this world. See our divine intention, the force of our commitment to overcome our own limitations, to put out our energy one-pointedly for an expansive goal. Feel how that creates a magnet And that magnet draws out of the infinite a shower of gold. Feel that gold coming to us not so much as a gift, but as the natural result of the magnetism of our own consciousness. Our magnetic self connects with the infinite source, opening that window for that abundance to flow. It comes down and falls over our hands, onto our lap, spreads out like a beautiful golden pool all around us. We exist in the midst of that golden flow, an unbroken stream drawn to us by the power of our focused intention to be an instrument of service, to help others, to be creative and productive, and then to draw to us all the resources we need to fulfill that intention. Feel the support of the divine for this divine wish of our own. That we may serve the world, that we may give to the world, and in so doing, open this channel of abundance, this golden flow between ourselves and the infinite. Surrender to the infinite all thoughts of limitation. Whatever wrong ideas we have about our own abilities, simply surrender them into the infinite. Let them be absorbed in that golden flow.
feel our limitless connection with the infinite source. That doorway opening and showering us with golden abundance. And then see that golden energy flowing out through our hands, through our hearts, through our thoughts, manifesting as creative work. Blessings to others. Inner satisfaction. Om, peace. I'd like to um, ask you all if we are moving forward in a way that's helpful to you. I recognize we're only on lesson two. And, um, pardon me? No, I meant, I didn't mean that we were moving too slowly, but it may not be clear yet, to me at least, even where we're going from, in terms of the practical application of these lessons. You haven't been a particularly chatty group. I don't even always ask, remember to ask you to chat with me, but um, this is meant to be, this is one of those courses in which it's not just a question of gathering information, it's a question of acting on what you hear. Yes. The flow of energy? Uh-huh. And spin something around it, and it's right. actually made more sense this time than the first time I did it. Okay, very good. I was going to deal with that tonight, so I'm glad you brought that up. I'm, I'm not done with lesson two, because we really need the last thing he talks about is exactly what you're describing, that exercise of putting something into the ether and creating a magnetic circle of light around it in order to produce results. It seems to me we ought to spend a little time on that. Yeah, my thought was if we pick something that we could easily do and then do it this next week, say. See what happens. I think that's a very good idea. Yeah. Any other questions or thoughts or suggestions? Are you all finding that this is helpful to you in the primary purpose for which it's designed, which is to help us think out what blocks us and how to overcome those blocks? Well, if that's how you feel, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, Brenda. In the past, I've always had great difficulty with guided meditations that, you know, have you looking at the ocean and the sand and so forth, and my mind is thinking, ooh, it itches and (laughs) all that kind of stuff. And these meditations are just incredibly different. I mean, I just find that I can just dive right into them so completely, and they just, just now, I mean, I arrived late and just immediately was into what you were saying and, and felt tremendous peace. So it just, it surprises me because I've never been really able to, to go into guided meditations, and these are just That's incredible. Excellent. You know, um, of course, it goes without saying that if you're serious about really getting your consciousness in tune with this, you have to do something with it other than the time that you're here. I mean, that's why we were having you buy the course and buy the lessons. You know, if, if material abundance is really a major need in your life, then obviously the images that he gives us are important too keep up with. And I'm, I'm trying also in my own mind to kind of keep track of the flow. I mean, the first lesson is about the absolutely, um, absolutely fair and inexorable nature of karmic law. And this, the necessity to accept reality as it is. And at the beginning of that course was also about just coming to the point in life where we recognize that there are many levels of reality 
and that matter is not the final reality and that we, we're searching for a reality behind it. And then we emphasize our connectedness to all of creation and turn our inward energy outward toward giving. That was a lot of what the first lesson was about. And the second lesson is about manifesting money, which is um, Swamiji saying, and we're going to talk a little bit more, just about um, if we feel that something is blocking us, instead of allowing that to block us, to become very active in creating a counter wave. And that, that's really a lot of what he's saying here. You know, we feel like I can't do it because I don't have opportunities. I can't do it because I become afraid. I can't do it because I seem to get sick every time I try, whatever the ideas might be. Swami is just telling us in very simple words, um, in very simple terms, whatever you feel is the energy that's keeping you from achieving something, try to, try to create an antidote to it and then put your energy into the antidote. You know, if you sense that you've been selfish about things and your mind always goes to yourself, then try to um, be specifically and deliberately and outwardly generous on a very systematic basis. You know, if you have a tendency to be um, depressed, then teach yourself to be, you know, conscientiously cheerful in whatever context you actually can do that. One of the things that Swamiji says in this lesson is, Essentially, aim low. Don't be overambitious in the project you set for yourself, but do something that you can actually succeed at doing. Um, before the end of the class, I'm going to, I, I, there's some points I just want to go through and emphasize here. We want to make this clear, but as much as you can f- figure out what the undermining qualities are, I mean, I'll use an example from my own life. I have, a, I have a, one of the positive aspects of my nature is that I can be very enthusiastic and interested in everything. One of the negative aspects of my nature is that I can be very enthusiastic and interested in everything, and that can result in a real lack of focus and being really scattered. Um, Over the years, I've certainly mitigated that fault to an enormous extent, but I, I remember when I began to appreciate that all of my good qualities and all much of my talent was being squandered because I was so scattered. It was just as simple as that. And so to to be focused, to choose one thing and finish it, to say no to many of the possibilities that were out there in front of me, became my first priority. And I seemingly became contractive for a period of time because I had to counteract that tendency to be scattered, and I had to make it a deliberate, actual decision that was more important than any other decision I, I had. Do you see what I mean? I remember at a much earlier phase, I realized that I was very harmonious with other people, not because I didn't feel dissonance, but because I was afraid to actually say what I really felt. And so the priority became to counteract that fear of self-expression, which you can hardly see in me now, but believe me, it was there. To counteract that fear... I just had to speak very frankly in all situations. I had to say what I felt was true. And being nice, being liked by other people, creating harmony was just unimportant compared to creating a very strong counterwave to what I felt was a fundamental energy that was holding me back. Or a fault that you could see. Swamiji talks about in himself, and I think it's a very light fault, but he says he has a great affection for beautiful things. 
So he, he loves beautiful things. But so instead of buying things for himself, he buys gifts for others. So it's like he can indulge that affection, but then he spiritualizes it by giving them away instead of feeling he has to own them. So whatever you're thinking of in yourself, what this lesson is about is beginning to undo what those qualities might be. Um, I, I myself also just wanting to be able to not quit just before I finish things. You know, the perseverance quality. I, when I first started swimming at the YMCA, I set exactly how many minutes I would swim, and I, I think I have never gotten out of the pool before I swam every single one of those minutes. And sometimes I would try to say, oh, I can just get out. It's just two more minutes, you know. 28 minutes is almost the same as 30. But I would say to myself, no, I I need to learn to do exactly what I say I'm going to do and keep my word and finish. And so I would do 30 minutes. And it has been surprising to me. I've been swimming about 15 years now. It's surprising to me how that simple decision has actually, in in astonishing ways, turned my energy. Because you're, you're deliberately setting up a counterwave, consciously setting it up. And so not only do you, you build karma in the direction you're going, but you're also thwarting and starving karma that was going in the wrong direction. You see what I mean? Now, you, these things seem very trivial, don't they? I mean, they seem really small, but they aren't. Because the... Um, Reformation of our consciousness actually happens a tiny bit at a time. And one of the ways we keep ourselves from actually having to reform our consciousness is that we choose projects that are too big, then we get to fail, and then we get to prove to ourselves that I can never change. That's uh, one of the... uh, uh, There's a a clever phrase for it, which I don't remember, but it it doesn't matter. But that's just... That's polarizing the situation. So now you know I've, I've tried to do this, which is too far from me, so therefore I get to be terrible again, when in fact what one should have done is moved a quarter of an inch to be very, very realistic. So don't underestimate the power of very small gestures actually carried out. You may think it's too small for you to succeed, but if you become absolute in your commitment to it, you'll be amazed. Um, in order to give to others, you know, the simple habit of really giving people your attention. I mean, even just saying, I know this sounds really small. There was one woman I counseled. She actually followed my advice, and it really helped her. I said, you're always so self-concerned, you never even actually say good morning to the people who cross your path. And I suggested to her that she simply greet people when she saw them in the morning. It sounds so nothing, doesn't it? But in her particular case... To, to be able to come out of her self-absorption sufficiently to actually cognize that there was another person there and pay attention enough to actually give them a greeting was a very dynamic way of beginning to counteract a habit of self-absorption. I'm giving you all these examples so that you can then run through your own little list and pick out something that's genuinely real to you. You'll be amazed. Pick up a, a few small things or one key one like I was able to do when I was dealing with a lot with being scattered, where I just saw that every other problem came from one source, whatever that source might be. If you're able to bring your own um, character down to that and then just focus in on counteracting that one small quality in extremely small and doable ways, 
I think you'll be amazed by the results. Now that's what Swamiji's talking to us about in this lesson too, how to magnetize money, is that we have to be able to concentrate our energy. Because there's this, there's this reality that people have, which is, you know, money is, a, is energy, and energy is dynamic. And yet we imagine that somehow we can have all that energy come to us, but we don't ever actually have to put out commensurate energy to get it. And there's a whole lot of, you know, training programs that are essentially based on how to get wealth without actually putting out energy. And in, in several places through here, Swamiji refers to hard work and energy and concentration. And in this lesson, he talks about karma is a matter of will and energy. And if the karma is not automatically flowing for you, if you don't seem to have success karma, then whatever obstacles have been set up in the past can all be overcome, but that you have to put out commensurate will and energy. You can't just merely imagine that it's going to change. You see, what we really have to picture in our minds in the most dynamic way is that this is metaphysics. This is physics, in other words. This is not opinion, and this is not a question of sort of being nice enough to draw God's grace. This is simply magnetic forces one against the other. And I I love the picture which I often draw of the flow of the river and the energy being sucked off by the whirlpools. The flow of the river, we have this intention. We want it to go toward productive, serviceful work that's remunerative in the way that we think is valid. We want to, to do something that is meaningful to us and be rewarded for it in the way that is appropriate. And we have that intention. We may even have some good ideas or else we have a, a job in front of us that we need to complete properly before we're ever going to be released from it. Um, I know uh, I've, I've told you the story, some of you, when uh, David and I were first married, and we ended up, Swamiji suggested that we build a house near Crystal Hermitage, which is now the Crystal Hermitage guest house. And it was, um, it was, it was not a simple thing for me to build a house because I have always enjoyed um, being a renunciate and having nothing. So the idea of having to have a house, paradoxically for me, was not a welcome idea. In fact, I felt spiritually threatened by the idea of having to have a house. David, who doesn't have those complexes, was very comfortable with the idea that we would build a house. We need a house, we'll build a house. So he began to put himself into the thought of how to make it an attractive house. My way of dealing with the issue was that I figured that I would pay no attention and build an ugly house, and then that would prove that I was detached. Finally, after some weeks of kind of a, him pushing on one side of the door and me pushing on the other, he turned to me and he said, if you're not going to help, at least get out of the way. And then I had to stop and re-examine what I was thinking. But Swamiji's answer to me in that context or another similar one was, you don't get free of karma by doing it badly. See, that's the thought we have. I don't like this. I don't want to do this. So I'm going to just make a complete hash of it and then I won't have to do it again. Unfortunately, that's not true. We have to overcome whatever aversions it is generating within us. That doesn't mean everybody has to do everything. Um, Life is short. You have to concentrate on certain things. I know there was a man who came to Swamiji and told him he really wanted to be a successful businessman. Swami said, basically, it's just not necessary for your spiritual growth that you be a success in business. You know, you have many other qualities, in his case, teaching, counseling. 
But the man was determined to be a success at business, so he, he went bankrupt several times <laughs> before he went back to what he was really good at. So it's not necessarily that you have to learn to do everything. That becomes a sensitive personal question. But if we find ourselves in a circumstance from which God does not release us, we can pretty much be sure that that's something we're going to have to deal with. Someone, someone asked Swamiji once, how can I tell what, what, what it is, what's my karma to do? He said, well, if the job needs to be done and you're next in line. That was the like, deeply thoughtful answer he gave. You know, I, I'm, I'm joking when I say deeply thoughtful. He was sort of pointing out that, because I think also because the reason the man was asking was that he was trying to avoid putting out energy by pretending that he just needed to know what God wanted him to do and then he would be happy to put out energy. Whereas, in fact, he didn't want to put out energy, so he was, he was pretending to be confused, which is, a, which is essentially what Arjuna did in the Bhagavad Gita. He was there, and he was supposed to fight the war, and he really had to fight, but he, he didn't want to fight. So he pretended to be confused about whether it was the right thing to do or not. I don't mean pretended, but he, he brought up all these doubts. And that's when Arjuna, Krishna said to him, you're using the words of the wise to cover the attitudes of a fool and a coward, meaning that this is a facade covering something deeper. So when God puts us in a circumstance, which he often does, and despite the best efforts, I mean, I've, I've been in, circ- in situations many times in my own life and with others where I can see lots of reasons why it would be really good for this person to be extricated, but every effort to extricate them hits a black, a blank wall and they just can't be extricated from whatever it is. Well, then you have to decide that we better change our attitude and burrow through it or else we're never really going to get free. And that's when we go back according to the way this lesson describes it. See, lesson one tells us, okay, karma is always exactly what it's supposed to be. There's no point in rebelling it against it. Lesson one tells us, Whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, identify with the greater whole and give. Lesson two tells us whatever obstacles we feel within ourselves, we can solve them by, we don't have to be subject to them. We can overcome them by deliberately putting out a counterwave to it. In other words, don't worry about the obstacles, just worry about what positive expression you can give. Does that make sense? Because, I mean, from all of us, this is where we end up. We end up, we, we don't like it, and we feel we can't do it for one reason or another. Isn't that so? So we just have to start working our way. Now, any questions or comments or thoughts? Yes, Patrick. So you said um, you recommended aiming low. <laughs> right. Um, and that just seems wrong. It seems that you should aim high. I think you should aim realistically to a target you can actually hit. Eventually. Patience is a virtue. Well, but Patrick, think, listen to it this way. Um, what causes us to lose energy above all is if we get discouraged. If we begin to think of ourselves as a person who can't. Isn't that true? We lo- when we lose self-confidence, it's very difficult to go forward. So Master said, we should do those things that we can succeed at so that we can build our sense of, a, as, of, of being a person who can succeed. If we consistently choose um, courses of action that are beyond our realistic capabilities to achieve and continually fail at them, 
it doesn't necessarily lead to eventual success. Sometimes it just makes us more and more discouraged. Master even put it this way. He said, if you're faced with a test that's greater than you can pass, he said, run away from it. Because rather than, than, than fail when you know you're going to fail, he said, just run away from it. And essentially he said, it'll follow you, don't worry. <laughs> he didn't mean run away and hide. He just meant turn away from it and do something that you can do. I know uh, when a, a woman was leaving a very difficult marriage and she said to Swamiji, um, do you think this karma is over? He said, not likely. He said, but you've made as much progress in it as you can make, and now you need to put it on the shelf, go do other things and learn in other ways, and then eventually you'll come back and face what you haven't learned here. And that's a greater recipe for success than hurling yourself against a wall that you're never going to be able to scale. And part of that is just having the humility and the self-honesty to be able to say, this is who I am and this is what I can do. It's a very fine line, Patrick, though, because we're not actually encouraging you to not stretch yourself. We're just asking people to stretch appropriately. I often point this out in terms of affirmations also, since we're touching this. In a strange way, you see, you have to choose your affirmations even um, thoughtfully. Because if you affirm something that's so far beyond your actual capacity to have faith in it, Every time you affirm it, your subconscious will say, ha, you've got to be kidding. I was working with a woman once who had developed um, uh, some chemical sensitivities and she worked in a lab and she'd had to go off work for some weeks while she tried to recover and she was very nervous about going back to work. So she told me she was doing these healing affirmations. I am strong and well and, you know, Everything contributes to my strength and well-being. And she sort of told that to me. And I just intuitively said, I said, do you really believe that? She said, no, just like that. (laughs) You know, and it was like you could sort of hear that every time she tried to say that, she became frightened, even at the prospect of that. And I said, why don't we try to find an affirmation you can actually say? And so what we ended up with is whatever comes with God's guidance, I will creatively um, solve the problem, or I will know what to do. Okay, that, was, that was very real. And really, it was the same uh, result, which is that she was able to go in with optimism and strength, but she was actually affirming closer to where she stood. I, for myself, when I was having a difficulty um, doing something, I... Uh, and the, the affirmation I used was, I know God's power is limitless, and as I am made in his image, I do have the strength to overcome all obstacles. And I, it was very carefully chosen, because I can with faith say that God's power is limitless. I don't really doubt that. And as I am made in his image, I have a sense of my unity with God. So those two you know, of course my faith wasn't perfect, so that was pushing it a little bit, but those were dynamic statements I could stand behind. And then after that was, I know God's power is limitless, and as I am made in his image, I too have the strength. I mean, that's where it got a little dicey, because that was the point where I began to lose heart. But I was trapped, because I know his power is limitless, and I know I'm one made in his image, and so therefore I must have the power to overcome all obstacles. So it was bigger than I was, but small enough that I could get my arms around it. And when I was swimming, 
I decided that I would swim only 30 minutes instead of 45 because I couldn't count on myself to do 45 minutes. But I knew I could count on myself to do 30. But even 30 was just a little bit of a push because I always wanted to stop at 25. <laughs> but you know, by, con- by just pushing it just that little bit, I really surprised myself. You know, that I can say what I'm going to do. And, because, you know, the, the rebellion of the mind is usually intensely unreasonable. It's more like, what is five more minutes? But when my mind would decide it didn't want to do something, it would just become frantic not to do it. You know, that's the weakness of it. It wouldn't be just like a little desire. It would become a frantic desire not to do it. And so having to hold my mind past that frantic for just five minutes, it might have well been, you know, it was, it was a huge mountain to overcome, you see? I'm being, as Jaya said it so perfectly, or Nitai said it, I'm describing the spiritual journey with which I am most familiar, which is my own, in the hope that the principles that I've lived through will also be of benefit to you. Does that make sense to all of you? Yeah. Okay. I was just um, answering to his question because I have struggled with that. And for me, it's either 100% or zero. And um, aiming low doesn't mean you stay low. You go to a point where it's so comfortable that you cannot fail. And then you keep pushing yourself till you come to your limit and you know you can't go beyond so that you never fail. I think that's how I look at it. And I don't stay low. I mean, it's like losing weight. If I say I have to lose like 30 pounds, I can never do it. If I say one pound, it's not that I stay at one pound, but you keep taking it up, you know, one at a time till you you reach your goal. So I don't equate aiming low as staying low as well. And it also just depends on your temperament. You know, some people are more inspired by something that seems overwhelmingly challenged, challenging, and others are terrified if the challenge is overwhelming. So what Swami actually says is simply choose a modest goal that you can actually achieve. Now, whether that is high or low, I was the one who said aim low, because I've seen more people fail because they set themselves an unrealistic goal than I have seen people not live up to their potential because they aim too low. I mean, I, I, so it just depends on which, which problem we're, we're countering here. Do you see what I mean? It's just, it's impo- it's just important to ground our, our, our personal lives in something that we can actually hold on to. It's not even just a question of immediate success. It's a question of long rhythms. You know, we need to develop habits of self-transformation that will last us not through all of this lifetime and for many lifetimes to come. It may be possible to gather our forces to make one gigantic you know, leap, but we don't want to be what Master called straw fires, which burn hot and quick, but then there's not enough fuel under there to, to last. We want to be you know, something that just goes steadily forward and just keeps moving and has the method in their mind of how to keep moving steadily forward. Does that make sense? Does that make sense to you, Patrick? I know you're the hardest person in the room to persuade, so <laughs> that's all right. Okay. Um, what I've done in this uh, lesson, too, because I wasn't sure whether we'd stay with it or not, is I went through and I, I marked a number of ideas that I felt we had given insufficient attention to. So I'm just going to basically just go through and sort of speak of them. Um, the first one was the, just the concept of energy and willpower which I think we've already talked about a little bit, that um, it's countering the karma that we have is all about how much energy and willpower we put behind it. And I, I don't think I need to say that point more. 
Here was another paragraph that I thought was amazing. He says, Never forget that the worst of sinners can, indeed must, become a saint someday, not because God will force him to become good, but because he himself will at last recognize in the search for happiness that is everyone's quest in life that what he has really been seeking is not outward, but inner joy, the inner joy of his own being. The happiness he has sought in things has been with him always inside his own self. Such is the destiny of every human being and in the long span of cosmic time of every creature. We came from the infinite. Someday we will ourselves want to rediscover our identity with the infinite. Now, because the whole point of what we're talking about here is how to manifest outwardly, although Swami's always weaving these two themes together, it's sort of, he, he's always telling us at the same time that he's teaching us how to manifest outwardly, he's telling us that everything we seek is inside. Um, when I was having a conversation with a friend, a rather business-minded friend who was talking about business-type ways of making money, my, I, I, I didn't protest. I've never been on that side of any project that I've been in. I said, my interest in, in teaching this course is that I really want to understand how Swamiji has done it. Because Swamiji is not a, a clever manipulator of finances. You know, I think he's a little bit, well, he's really not much more sophisticated than this. When he used to keep, he used to have an, numerous envelopes and, you know, different projects would have their money in different envelopes. Now he travels all over the world and he has different wallets for different currency. Here's the rupee wallet and the euro wallet and the Swiss franc wallet, you know, and the American dollars wallet. I mean, he's not, he's not, he's not sophisticated in the way that people think about being sophisticated. He just keeps things in very simple systems. He doesn't calculate interest rates and what you can benefit by borrowing and what you should buy. I mean, he's just very straightforward about the things that he does. And yet, you know, his capacity to set his mind on a goal and to manifest it is seemingly limitless. And as I've said many times, the whole creation of Ananda was the result of his single-minded determination to do it. Many of us have been drawn to help him But believe me, he's the force that's made it happen from start to finish. So right here, when he's talking about manifesting money, he reminds us that sooner or later, by our own longing, we are going to be drawn to realize that what we were seeking outwardly was really the joy of our own being. I was contemplating that um, just recently, just thinking about how... um, how, how we seek this expansion... And we seek to expand by adding things outwardly, thinking that will make us bigger inside. And of course, we do that enough. And we're not talking, I don't think, in this room about um, a selfish desire to manifest. We're talking about the ability to fulfill our responsibilities and to serve the work and to do it in such a way that we feel is dharma and is, is conducive to right consciousness. So I don't think we're correcting any great greedy wrongs. Such people just would never come here to learn about these things. But there's a side to it that we, we have to sort of figure out how to put this together. Because on one hand, Swamiji is telling us it's the bliss of our own being. That's what we're looking for. Sooner or later we will discover that that's all we're seeking. But he's not giving us a course in how to renounce the world and go off and be a hermit somewhere. I... I um, 
I'll come back and use David, my husband, as an example, because he was a very great teacher to me in this way. I was referring back to when we built that house, which was, you know, like that was 1982. This is like really a long time ago, 83, something in there. And um, I essentially came from a karmic background, you might say, of uh, being a nun living in a little cloister somewhere. When we went to when we were traveling together, David and I, in the early years of our life together, we, we were somewhere in Greece, and there was this old stone monastery, and there was this little cell with a stone bed and a stone floor and stone walls and a little cold water tap. And I just went in that room, and I just sat down, and I thought, ah, home. You know, it was just like absolutely wonderful to me. I felt so comfortable in the absolute austerity and nothingness of it. David, like, he just couldn't wait to get out of there, you know, and it's, and in, in, it's not in any way that he's more attached to the material world. What I began to realize between us is that I had very much divided the world up, and I think it was because of all those lifetimes in, in, in external renunciate circumstances. There was the material world, and there was the spiritual world, and that's why the house became such a tough issue for me at first. Um, David, um, either because he came up differently or I always said, you know, he, he came the Rajasijanakananda route, you know, to spirituality instead of the uh, cloistered nun direction. But to him, it was all just energy, you see? For me, there was spiritual energy, then there was other energy. There was material energy, and then there was renunciate energy. To David, it's always, always been all just energy. And whether you're using that energy to meditate, whether you're using that energy to work, whether you're using that energy to go on holiday, whether you're using that energy to go on pilgrimage, whether you're helping others, whether you're spending for yourself, it was, it's all just a flow of energy. And I began to understand how that was really a much more expanded point of view than the point of view that I had because it freed him to do what was ever, whatever was needed. You see what I mean? He could just do whatever was needed, whereas I was always going through these chaotic inner struggles about what was right and what wasn't right, and he would just get up in the morning and do what was needed. He joked with me once after I dragged him to some astrologer or another. We walked out, and he sort of turned to me and said, let's not waste money on this anymore for him. I mean, I still do it sometimes, but he says, I'm going to be just the same. I said, I don't need to know. He said, I get up in the morning... I put out as much good energy as I can until the end of the day. He said, what do I need to know? Anything else? It was a very, it was a very helpful and interesting statement and, and also was a very good teaching for me. You know, I've learned a great deal from him in that way. Now, you see, this is what Swami faced. And Swami himself, not in, well, maybe elsewhere in these lessons, I'm not sure, but in other autobiographical writings of his, he went into a monastery when he was, 22 years old. And he was kicked out of that monastery 14 years later when he was 36. And he'd never, he was raised in wealth and comfort. His his father was a high-level executive for SO Oil Corporation. Their home was in Scarsdale, New York. He associated with, you know, the Rockefellers. And I mean, it wasn't like he was in the richest, highest percentage, but he was in a very high level of society. As he tells the story, when he was 16, his father wanted to buy him a, t- a tuxedo, just now that he's a grown man, assuming that you'll need one. And Swami said, don't bother, I'm never going to use it. 
meaning I'm never planning to enter that world. And he declared to his father he would never even earn enough money to have to pay income tax, you know, which was just beyond his father's comprehension, who'd worked very hard to bring himself up to that position. So when Swami found himself at the age of 36, all on his own, and he had to cast about to feel what God wanted him to do, and he felt God wanted him to start the Ananda communities, there was nobody who was going to do it for him. He had to do it entirely himself. And the project became all about money. You know, you have to buy land, you have to put buildings on that land, you have to employ people to work, you have to start businesses. It was all about money. And Swami's initial response was, Lord, I'm a monk. I've renounced all this. I don't want to do any of this. But how do you know if it's your karma to do it? Well, he felt that he needed to build this project. And the only way this project was going to build, get built was if he put his energy into it. And so he, he describes how the discipline that was imposed upon him by the necessity, and he earned the money by serving master's work, which is he... I mean, this is a notable feature about him. Except for one small exception, which was sort of a misunderstanding. Swami never took any job except teaching master's teachings. He wrote books, he recorded music, he gave classes. He did take a job for the Peace Corps because the volunteers were going to India and he thought he could train them in the Indian culture. Turned out that most of them were not interested. But that's the only actual job he ever took. He always earned money by doing what, he, what from his central self he was destined to do. Now, Swami has actually told other people, not everyone can do what I do. You know, so he, he modifies that a little bit. You know, that was like, you have to choose realistic goals. But now, coming through all of that, so he, part of the ability to move through this world and just do what you have to do is because you're standing in right relationship to it. And that's where the introduction to this course was all about. What is right relationship? The right relationship is to understand exactly what it is and what it can and can't give us and where our efforts fit into the, the, the greater picture. You know, our, our, our deepest effort is to find eternal bliss and perfect freedom. It's not really, for the most part, to be millionaires, except insofar as I at least dream of winning the lottery and thinking what I would do with 23 million, 50 million, 80 million. I go through my mind every once in a while and spend it. I have such fun spending it. And whatever the lottery thing is, it's not big enough. I have to keep increasing it. You know, it would just be marvelous to have all that money, and I'd pay off all the debts of all the colonies, and we'd pay off this legal debt, and then we'd buy all the land we need in India, and then we'd get a new school campus. Well, anyway, you can see how it goes. It just takes no time at all to spend all that money. But what we're really trying to do is we're trying to put out the right kind of energy, give to the world, um, discipline ourselves in the way that we need, and, and fulfill the lingering desires that we may have. You know, it it's better to just frankly admit, you know, I'd like to have a little more money in my pocket. I'd like to be able to have a few more of the choices that money will give us. But nonetheless, we have to understand what this whole picture is. So Swami puts this marvelous paragraph, which just in itself is such an interesting writing. God will never force you to be a saint. He will never force you to give up your sin, so to speak. But sooner or later, you will want to give it up. 
because you will recognize that it's not as fulfilling as where you're going. Sooner or later, I will want to stay in the pool for 30 minutes because keeping my word is more satisfying than giving in to that monkey mind that says, get out now, get out now, get out now. Isn't that what our, what our minds do? You know, just don't do... Someone said who was writing, I'm a, I, I have to do a certain amount of writing and my biggest issue always is just to start. Someone said, thank God for writing deadlines, otherwise I'd never get any housework done. <laughs> Meaning, as soon as I'm faced with one of those, I start procrastinating and I'll do anything rather than write. Okay, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm somewhere in the middle, but I definitely understand that. I get more unpleasant tasks done when I have a writing deadline because everything else looks better to me than actually sitting down and starting to do that. But I write better because I stayed in the swimming pool 30 minutes. Isn't that interesting? You see how you just kind of begin to work with yourself? But sooner or later, the joy of our own being will not give us peace and it will call to us and it will call to us and it will call to us. And so even as we are attempting to do the necessary outward things that have been imposed upon us, let us also think of it as an exercise in building the right state of consciousness that will then free us from the necessity to do this anymore. Whether we, whether we even... It, it's extremely important to be extremely sincere with ourselves. There's no point in pretending that we're really above something when we're not. But we can also keep in mind that how I feel now is not how I will feel always. And once I get through this experience, there'll be another more expansive way to be after it. And so, the happiness he has sought in things has been with him always inside his own self. Isn't that a sweet thought? It's, that certainly, quite honestly, that sentence has helped me to curb my spending. <laughs> Not that I'm really a spendthrift anyway, but just every so often, I've been, I've been just like everyone in our economy right now, I'm just trying to spend less and spend less impulsively. And I've just, be, just, be, just that simple thought, just watching how restlessness builds in my consciousness, and I just think if I could just go out and acquire something. I like to shop. I like clothes. You know, if I just go out and just wander around and find something pretty that never looks as pretty when I get it to my closet as it did in the store, but it's just that thought of adding it in. Now, you know, we live in balanced times. We don't have to be too strict about it. As one of my friends says, sometimes even Divine Mother likes to go shopping. (laughs) Um, Swamiji makes a reference to Valmiki several places here. And and there's a few places where this course is written for an Indian audience because everyone in India knows the story of Valmiki. And he says his very rejection, how he turned his very rejection of God into an obsession with him the story is told about Valmiki, which is, this is like the ultimate example of taking your fault and making it a virtue. That Valmiki, who was this robber and murderer, who, be, who suddenly became converted by his encounter with these saints when he realized that he wasn't really getting what he wanted, and they wanted him to repeat the name of Rama, but he was so evil he couldn't. So they had him repeat the name Mara, which was the name for the devil. And it, when he said Mara, 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 Mara. And so he, he, he quoted the name of the devil until it turned into the name of God. That's how the story is told. So his very obsession with evil gradually became an obsession with God. But it's a, it's a wonderfully charming story because it also tells us that if we concentrate deeply enough on anything, by that very act of concentration, we will discover deeper and deeper realities within it. 
And this is how eventually we discover that whatever it is we were trying to do there, as I think I've said several times in this class, it's not that success itself is so important. It's the consciousness we have to develop in order to succeed that ultimately becomes our wealth. And that's why God puts us in this strange situation. I mean, he could have made a world in which it wasn't so hard. In fact, Swamiji commented when we were visiting Hawaii once that the islands of Hawaii, before the white settlers came and brought them smallpox and all the mess that they brought them, um, when it was just the islanders, because it was a relatively speaking harmonious tropical world. I mean, some of the other physical paradises have been fraught with conflict, but Hawaii was more peaceful. He said, Hawaii would have, must have been sort of like not actually fully incarnating, but just staying half in the astral world because the, the weather was so um, mild that you just really hardly needed any structures to live in. You didn't need hardly any clothes. Food was growing wild from the sea or from the plants. And so you could kind of live in Hawaii without ever actually having to put out the kind of hard effort that the material world usually requires. Um, more recently, a, a, a Japanese yogi said one of the reasons we enjoy Hawaii so much is that the, the vegetation there puts out so much pollen and scent that it's kind of like a little bit like an opiate. And so you do, you just kind of go over there, and even very aggressive type A type people find that they can just sit around a lot. That's his explanation. One of my friends moved his whole company to Hawaii big deal. I moved them all to Hawaii, and then six months later, he moved them all back. He said, well, I can still remember what we were trying to accomplish. <laughs> he, said. he said he just couldn't do the work that he intended to do in that environment. It just wasn't conducive. But mostly in the physical world, we're just stuck. We're compelled. You know, we, we have all these wonderful philosophical ideas about how nice it would be, but you just can't find a way. We're forced into what seemed to be uncongenial um, boxes, but what that does is that drives us inside, you see, because the external world doesn't give us what we want or demands of us a kind of self-discipline that we wouldn't give ourselves otherwise, and as a result, slowly by slowly, we're driven inside. Now, you see, this comes back to karma is always fair, and everything that happens to us is from the love of God in order to make us eternally happy, and here we're talking about how to manifest money It's by getting deeper and deeper into that reality because here's um, another point that I just thought was so powerful. And I've mentioned this slightly, but I wanted to stay with it a little bit longer. People don't realize that faith simply means working with an energy and a will that are already there. It's a very interesting way to put it, isn't it? When you have faith in God, when you have faith that this project will work, when you have even faith in yourself, you're having faith in something that actually exists that's already a magnetic force and all that we're doing is tuning into it. Now, to have faith in God in the whole context that I'm talking about, about that karma is fair and whatever I'm being asked to do, if I do it with a joyful, willing spirit, with energy and willpower and concentration, that it will you know, turn out to be a flower no matter what it looks like at the present moment. That's faith in the energy and will that is already there. That this is the reality that I am going to tune into and move with. This is why Swamiji often uh, works with us and has trained us 
whenever we're trying to figure out what to do, he'll often teach us to say, not what do I want, what do they want, what does the group want, what does the consensus want, but what is trying to happen. It's a very interesting way to put it. What is trying to happen? In other words, what energy, what will, what flow of magnetism is trying to be manifest in this world and how can we help it? Um, This is the beginning of, of using our egos as a window for the infinite. And in this lesson also, which is a a point that comes in just a moment, he says, um, let's see where that point is. Self-confidence is best developed when it isn't centered in ego consciousness, but expands in self-surrender to divine consciousness. Man's own ability is severely limited, but there are no limits to the power of God For those who, and here's an interesting word, invite that power to flow through them. Isn't that an interesting word? Invite. Okay, we have faith that the energy and will is there. And and too often we try to build our self-confidence, especially in this culture, by affirming our own um, talents and our own abilities. I'm as good as anyone else. I'm capable. I have within me. But but self-confidence is more powerfully built, Swamiji says, when we, we surrender that sense of individual power and feel that our power is part of the energy and will that is already there. Do you see how that all goes together? And you see how all those little complexes can just be put aside. They just don't matter that much. I have this personal theory, which is totally false, but I, I, it, it works as an image. I really think that we never actually get any better. We, we never really overcome any of our faults or anything. We just stop caring. We just sort of act for an instrument of a higher consciousness, and it really just doesn't matter what the small mess is like because the, the light shines through anyway. There's a, some of these windows have a few cracks in them, but the light shines through just fine. This doesn't really make any difference whether there's cracks in the windows or not. And so we become obsessively concerned about the cracks in our window and that's all we see, whereas if instead we just opened up and let the light come through, the light would just be, be the operative reality. Um, I'm going to take a short break here because I have more things to say and I want you all to be refreshed. Before I go on, are there any other questions or thoughts that I should be dealing with, anyone wants to ask about? All right. Um, Oh, I know, there was one, the full, the full consent of the will. That was the one I wanted to say. Right, let me just see if I can find it. It was on page nine, that's where it is. There's a very interesting, one more point, and then I want to deal with the issue of... Um, the exercise that he has at the end of this one. Master says, Swami writes... He writes this story about how Yogananda, the brother of a disciple, was unable to achieve success, and then Yogananda de-jinxed him. Don't you love that? Don't you wish you could just be de-jinxed? That's sort of the great temptation of life, is that you just want somebody to come along and tap you. We always joke, because in, in the autobiography of a yogi, uh, master was put into cosmic consciousness when Sri Yukteswar tapped him on the chest. And so we sort of talk about just going to India and standing on the corner, you know. <laughs> just wait till someone comes and taps you on the chest. And 
when you hear this de-jinxing, you, you kind of want that to happen. But Swami universalizes the story. This is what was interesting. Um, let's see, how does he say it? The story about the man raises several interesting questions. Was this man simply ready to receive added assistance in a struggle that he was already winning? Another person might not have been ready for that assistance, for it is ever the divine way to work with man's will, never against it. There must be complete consent in the subconscious before a saint will consent to assist him. Now, I mean, you know, Swami has such gems planted in here. Com- complete, the, the divine works with man's will and never against it. Now, at one point, Swami made the statement in a completely other piece of writing. He said, um, failure indicates a lack of attunement with divine will. And I tried to argue something like, wasn't it true that sometimes we have to fail because it's our karma to fail? And Swami essentially was saying, you know, he just, he wouldn't, he wouldn't hear any variations on it. It was just an unequivocal statement. There, there's a divine flow of energy, and we tune into it, and we become manifestors of it. Now, yes... Everything in this world rises and falls, and what is success, and there's lots of other aspects. But what he's saying here is that we have to be completely ready to have God work with us before we can tune into that energy that is already there. Um, This complete consent of the subconscious is a fascinating dimension. I have looked back and I have one particular personal event that was very dramatic in my life where I struggled for more than 20 years with an antipathy toward another person. And the antipathy was, it was partly generated by actual inappropriate actions in this life. Um, Neither of us in the relationship behaved very well. But it was really also, you know, long past life energy, you know, uh, stored up sense of evening the score. And I suffered so much over the wrongs that were done to me, over the equally wrong things that I did, over my inability to overcome, you know, just all the different things that a person would go through when you're sincere spiritually and you're, you're deeply holding an attitude you know to be incorrect. Um... Several things happened sequentially. At one point, on a completely different matter, I was engaged with an intuitive counselor who was a friend of mine, and she was trying to help me overcome a a different attitude that was really troubling my life. And I was explaining to her just all my upset with the circumstances of my life and how difficult they were for me and how much I didn't like them and how it was not fair, really, what was happening. It was more than I could handle She listened to me and then said back to me, okay, well, I've heard how this causes you to suffer. How does this attitude also make you happy? And, you know, my first response was, this is an extremely unpleasant experience to feel this way. There's nothing about this that makes me happy. But she pointed out to me what I know is that we only hold on to things. We only do things because on some level we think they're going to make us happy. By the time we really know that they're not going to make us happy, we don't hold on to them anymore. Isn't that right? I mean, I'm just not going to you know, get a safety pin and just keep jamming it into my hand because once I re- realize the relationship, 
between the safety pin and the pain I'm feeling, I'm going to stop jamming it into my hand. We keep doing it because we know that our hand hurts, but we don't really understand that it's I who am jamming it in. So when she asked me that question, I had to stop. And at first I denied that there was any benefit to it. But then when I stood back a little, I saw that as long as I held on to that attitude in this particular case, it prevented me from having to expand into an area of greater responsibility that I was really afraid to take on. Because here I was, feeling overwhelmed, and as long as I was overwhelmed and had all these reasons and all these symptoms for my overwhelmness, then I never had to get any bigger because I was already overwhelmed. Isn't that great? So I get to stay just this size because this is all I can handle. And what was knocking at the door was a higher level of energy, a bigger field of service, and I just didn't want to go there. So by maintaining this attitude, so it actually worked very well for me. It kept me a small, it kept me within a comfortable smallness. It was an extremely beneficial point of view. And so when I was meditating at a certain point after some particularly unpleasant exchange with this person that I didn't get along with, I was sort of, you know, doing a very dramatic weep and wail in front of the altar about, you know, the misery of this situation. And then I remembered that question, how is this also making you happy? And I realized how much I enjoyed being righteously indignant. I just got really a lot of pleasure out of being righteously indignant. And I really enjoyed um, running over and over in my mind all the things that had been done to me. And I got a great deal of pleasure about imagining the past lives in which also things had been done to me. It was very deeply satisfying. Um, But sooner or later we become saints, not because God makes us become saints, but because we ourselves long for a higher level of joy. And when I really cognized that, I said to Master, you know, I really don't want this anymore. And it wasn't even like a big moment. I just said, you know, I really don't want this anymore. In that instant my heart changed and never went back. But it was like, no matter how many times I'd ask God to take it away from me, I didn't really want him to because I still was enjoying the pleasure of my righteous indignation in that particular case. So it, it gives me an insight when I read this, the complete consent of the subconscious. I mean, God knows how complete can we be about our subconscious. We're just not that conscious of our subconscious. But at least we can try to be as honest as possible about why we prefer what we pretend we don't want to actually being freed of it. Uh, A friend of mine once suggested a very good visualization, very simple, which is to imagine what your life would be like if you no longer had whatever it is you're trying to transcend. What would your life begin to look like at that point? And, And sometimes that's a very interesting way to sort of understand what it is that we're still holding on to. So part of our prayer for divine help is that we have to really work with whatever it is that um, is causing us to remain where we are. What am I getting out of this? Why is this working for me? How is it working for me? And is that really what I want? And Sometimes I, I joke, we have to pray to Master, help me to want to want to get rid of this. <laughs> 
you know, you can't even honestly pray, help me get rid of this. We just have to pray, help me want to want to get rid of this. At least that's, you have the full consent of your subconscious to want to want it, right? Even if you can't go all the way. But it, it's, um, it's, just, it's just a point of leverage in your own consciousness so that we don't just sort of have to wait passively and expect Master to do it for us and think he's going to. And then we build our, our self-confidence on one, the faith that the energy and the will is right there and that the um, building our self-confidence by surrendering the little ego, just surrendering into, Lord, you know, as long as you leave me here by myself, I'm going to have so many rotten attitudes, there's just no hope for this situation unless you lift me up into your awareness and we can work together. You need to be very friendly and very unprotected about the whole story. You know, here I am, Lord, I'm trying to do this, but my mind is all over the place. Stick with me. Now, all of this is a preparation for what he has here under the application section where he says, what I recommend is that you focus your demand first. So the first step is you have to decide what it is that you really want to achieve. And this is where he says, best, um, let's see, when you set yourself a modest goal, however, where he has that particular line, but you set yourself a modest goal that you think you can really achieve. Let's not try for world peace or something like that. But you know, a modest goal, um, a better job than the one you have, a few good ideas for your business a solution to a particular problem, a resolution of a relationship issue, whatever it might be. So what I recommend is that you focus your demand first. There has to be some concentrated clarity. If we're just vaguely asking for one thing and then we shift over to another and then maybe we want this and this might also be good. And, you know, it's just there has to be energy and will behind it. This is I talked about when we were founding the community, and Swami said, don't bother to ask whether it's a good thing. It's self-evidently a good thing. Just feel the energy of what that community will be like. And Swami's also told us all the way through, the focus of the demand is not necessarily the Volkswagen in the, driver, in the driveway with the keys in it. It's what it feels like to be where we're trying to be. You know, it could be that I can work with concentrated ease you know, that, that, that I will just focus my energy every day and sit at my desk and do what needs to be done. That I, I will feel myself free of my likes and dislikes. That the energy will just flow. That there'll be a, a positive direction. That, that my, um, you know, sense of, of being abused or misused in this job or my boredom will go away. That I'll be dynamic and creative. Do you see what I mean? It's not just um, an external item. It's not just $50,000 annual income or whatever it is, but it's still, it's focused, and it's intentional, and it's righteous. It matches everything else that we want. Okay, so we, first you focus your demand, then you project it upward. Okay, and upward is an, is an inward upward, because where that faith and energy takes place is from the superconscious realm. I put my hands out here like this because... The spiritual eye is the um, entryway into the infinite, and that spiritual eye exists um, just if, if our eyes are like here looking straight out even, and you lift your eyes up just slightly. When we set up this temple, we took that picture of Swami and Master, which is in the back, 
which is put up there for the sake of when you all leave, but it's also put up there for the sake of when I'm standing here. <laughs> because I stand here, and I have to raise my eyes just slightly to see that picture. And I often just raise my eyes slightly to see that picture, and it just helps me remember sort of where the energy is coming from. I mean, I say me because I asked for it, but anybody who's standing up here. We've always had a picture in the back, just a little above the horizon line for just that reason. Because when you raise your eyes slightly, you're moving in, out of conscious into superconscious. That's what Most of you have taken the basic meditation classes. It's a very good thing. Whenever your mind is wandering in meditation, ask yourself where your eyes are, Close your closed eyes, because you're, they're almost always either level or down. And if you just raise them slightly, you'll find that your consciousness goes up with them. So out in front of you, so you're not really being cross-eyed, but the way we teach you to look at the spiritual eye, you put your thumb out like that, and where your, where your eyes naturally come together, that's your point of focus, just above the horizon line. And when we learn to meditate deeply, and you look there, light appears. The spiritual eye, or at least some form of light, will begin to appear. Light will literally stream into you. So when he says, project it upward, we're projecting it up into that infinite. So we're offering it up. We're offering our desire, our self, our intention up into that power. That, that alone, you see, takes us a great distance. We're not concentrating with our ego. We're not looking down like this. We're not reading thousands of books. We're not, you know, like this. We're focusing it, clarifying it, then we're projecting it upward. We're sending it out as a demand, and he calls it a demand. You know, I demand, cooperate with me, Okay? with great willpower and energy. The more great willpower and energy you have, the more powerful it will be. Just a moment. From your heart and out through your spiritual eye. I mean, the heart is the origin point of ourself, so the energy starts here with feeling, and then it rises up out through the spiritual eye. So it goes up through the spine and out through the spiritual eye. Better than, doesn't go straight out, because it needs to be tempered by divine attunement. Yes, now your question. bow your head down in front of the altar or image or whatever you have. So is that different from when you are formulating your or focusing your demand as opposed to when you go down in, you know, in front of an altar, whatever well, you that can, may be? The, the center of ego in the body, in the physical body, is the medulla. This is where the ego is. This is the opposite pole to the spiritual eye. So the sign of humility in all religious traditions is to release the energy there and bow the head. And uh, people who are proud have a lot of tension here and lift it up. So whenever we want to show our devotion, we'll bow like that or even bow in front of the altar or stretch out in front of the altar. If you want to attune yourself with the infinite, though, you need to have a straight spine and an upward-moving energy. So people who actually pray like this are working against the way spiritual energy actually flows in the body. We present ourselves humbly, but then we lift ourselves up in yoga. And so it's a correction. You do see people who always pray like this, but it's not, it's not uh, cooperating. And so, yes, it's a very good question. But yes, first bow humbly and then lift your head. Okay? So we project it from our heart, and the heart is where all the feelings and the, the energy of ourself gathers, and then we project it out through this, to the spiritual eye. That flow of energy like electricity passing through a wire, will generate a magnetic field 
which will attract to itself consequences, I love the way he says it, that match the thought and the strength of the energy. So the more powerfully we continually send that demand out into the ether, and that demand is a visualization of the, 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 the consciousness and energy we wish to express. You know, the more we, as Swami says, don't tie it too tightly to form, concentrate on the energy behind the form, and then the form will manifest. You see what it is? On the material plane, it's just a reflection of thought and consciousness and energy. So if we get the energy and the consciousness right, the form will manifest. And the more powerfully, so as we're we're concentrating on just sending it out, it's not so much that we're verbalizing the whole experience. It's that we have a very strong feeling. We commit our will and energy into that feeling and keep generating it with our will and energy into the spiritual life, sending it out as a prayer demand. He says, I found that it also helps to think of that energy as a ray of light. So the, what's coming up from us is light emanating. Rotate around that ray the magnetism you want to create. So we, we see it as a spiral moving. And that's the force. Just the spiraling around and creating. The spiritual eye is a, is a moving force. The kundalini energy is a moving force. What he's really trying to say is don't make it static, make it dynamic. Make it feel like that energy is constantly flowing, like a river flowing in a spiral upward. You can just feel how that works. You can just feel the energy moving like that, can't you? I mean, I do it with my body because you can feel it inside like that. Rotate around that ray the magnetism you want to create. Whatever your need is, send the ray outward, not as an appeal but as a loving demand. Isn't that an interesting statement? Also, not as an appeal, but as a loving demand. Okay, Lord, we're in this together. You know, if I'm going to make any success of this, you have to help me. You can't abandon me. You've planted this desire in my heart. You've given me this need. I mean, whatever, it works. And then you rotate that thought and send that thought outward. Okay? Success depends on your force of will. Use that will directing the flow of energy to whatever you want to attract. All right. Why don't we do a short visualization based on this? Okay. Maybe you already know what it is that you would like to focus your energy toward. In the moment, just think of something simple that works strongly for you. This can be a prayer for someone else or something that you want to manifest, that you want to see manifested in the world, or that you want to manifest yourself. It can be very, you know, very specific. We're trying to finish the remodeling of our patio out here. We need to be able to generate the magnetism and energy to do it. Maybe someone in your life is ill, Don't necessarily think, oh, that person's going to get well. If you're praying for someone, what you want to to uh, imagine is divine light infusing that person's body, mind, and soul. Don't tie it to form. Just ask that the divine light come in. If there's a difficult situation you're trying to diffuse, the clarity of your demand is that the situation be permeated with divine light. 
get the right consciousness there, and then the energy will guide itself in the way it needs to. So find some righteous intent. And feel yourself, feel your faith in an energy and a will that is already there. You don't have to create this. It's not coming out of your little self. We are surrendering our little self into this great flow of the cosmos and demanding that the divine flow through us for the manifestation of this righteous goal. Now feel that energy centered in the heart with all the commitment of our feelings and our love for what we're trying to do and love for those whom we feel will be benefited and lift that thought up through the spiritual eye and then project it out and upward into that great opening of infinite light. Feel that that demand itself is a ray of light going out. We're not begging God to help us, but we're saying we're going to do this work. I am committed to this work. You have to help me make this work happen. This is my work to do, and I can't do it without your help. And that very thought is like a ray going out from your heart up through the spiritual eye. And you see that ray of light surrounded by this moving force, this magnetic force of electricity just turning around it. And you see it churning the ether, as Master puts it. Drawing all this magnetic power like a tornado, like a cyclone of energy drawing all this energy to a focus, it goes out into the infinite and it will manifest. Om, peace. Well, that's your homework. Set yourself a reasonable goal. See if we can magnetize ourselves into it, okay? Okay.